Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and this week, David Flatt will be with us speaking again on this reflect series topic. And so last week we talked about the Imago Dei, or the image of God. This week we're going to have the contrasting topic of how culturally we've distorted that, or in a sense, how we fractured that mirror, that image of God that's written on all of us, how we fractured that, how we've distorted that culturally. And so we're going to look at human sexuality, gender identity. We're going to look at topics like abortion and much more. And so I think there's going to be a political element to this, certainly always through the lens of Christianity. Um, But I really think a great uh, and really relevant topic for tonight. So David, of course, does an excellent job every time he teaches us. Really looking forward to this one. Thanks for joining in. Of course, here is David. All right, well, I hope everyone's doing great tonight. We are, I guess, week two of our Reflect series. So the idea behind Reflect is um, this idea of like we want to reflect God's image into the world. We'll talk a little bit about what that means. Uh, but last week, Kyle did a, a really good job. I wasn't here, but listened to the podcast. Did a really good job of introducing kind of the theological foundations for the Imago Day. And so, <clears throat> just to kind of get to the punchline, I think the Imago Day forms really all the basis of Christian thinking about like our what's called our our social witness that's maybe you'd hear that that kind of language in like Catholic circles more but I think it I think it would apply to all Christians how do we show um, God's will for his creatures in the world in 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 public so how do we socially interact and witness that Christ is risen and he is Lord and Savior over the whole world and so I think that the fact that we're made in his image is really the basis for all that kind of thinking and so of course that kind of thinking like transects transects like political thought but it's also going to engage in cultural thought it's going to engage in thoughts about um, creativity and the arts and it's also going to engage maybe applicable here into like professional thought so what is it that we do every day how do we work and who do we whose glory are we working for so all those are kind of neat things to talk about tonight is maybe not as neat of a thing to talk about because we're tonight we're going to talk about what happens when we get that wrong so when we when we think about the imago day or maybe don't think about the imago day correctly how does that distort um, what it means to be made in his image so with that being said uh, really the foundational verse for all this thinking Kyle talked about last week there's really only three texts in the Old Testament that talk about being made in the image of God and it's kind of funny that I I think um, sometimes something is not said very much but it means a whole lot so you think about like how many times did you say I do to, to your spouse well at least when it really mattered, once. But that kind of confession forms the basis for so much of your whole life. And so I think the, the being made in the image of God is kind of the same idea. If, if it confers what it means to be human in this like spiritual idea of how God created us, then I think um, that we can build a lot off of that. So let's, let's talk about that tonight. So the, the text is Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there, I mean, that verse is just, I mean, it's enough to spend at least four weeks on, right? Uh, just that one verse, and we really could spend more. Next week, the next two weeks, we're going to talk about what the last phrase in the verse means. Male and female, he created them. And how that's so important that um, 
we embrace our masculinity and our femininity for the glory of God and what that does and doesn't look like. So there's, if you want to think about it politically, there's ways to do that wrong on the political left and the political right. And, and really, we don't want to be thinking those terms anyways. We're not trying to find the right balance. What we want to do is live into our, um, how we were created in the image of God. So, but tonight, we're talking about how, what happens when our mirror becomes fractured. So, introduction, the Imago Dei is your first blank. So, there's just a, a definition of the Imago Dei, and Kyle went through several definitions last week, and if you had like a theological dictionary at home, or maybe even in the back of your Bible, you could look up and find the words a little bit different, but here's a definition from a preacher that I think is, is a, a really good preacher, I think a lot of what what he says and what he thinks. I think it's a good definition. He says, The Imago Dei is God's investment in humanity of God-like glory and moral capacity to reign and rule the earth as His representatives. So I don't want to spend too much time getting stuck on definition, but let's just unpack that a little bit. I really think the Imago Dei consists of of three things that it's going to apply to us as humans. The first is dignity. So you may want to scribble out next to dignity, what this makes you think of. But really at its core, I think dignity means that human life is valuable. So your neighbor matters as a person and is not um, to be trampled on or assaulted or um, to be physically hurt when they get on your nerves. And if we believe that all all humanity is made in the image of God, then we think that all life has dignity. And that means it has inherent worth and should be treated as such. The second idea is this idea of capacity. So, um, and Chandler says it here in his definition. And so, God-like glory—that's where we get dignity, moral capacity. So, what what that means is you're capable of things. You're capable of making moral judgments. You're capable of living um, life beautifully. You're capable of relationships with other humans, and you're capable of creation. You're capable of creating a business or a work of art or an interaction with a customer. You're capable of doing all kinds of things, and a lot of that comes from the fact that you're made in the image of a capable God. And then finally, he says, to, uh, to reign and rule the earth as his representatives. So this is the idea of, of responsibility. So if we're made in the image of God, it means that we have dignity. You matter as a person, and other humans matter as people. You have capacity. You're able to do things in the world. And you also have responsibility. So if you're made in the image of God, it's not acceptable to be um, a 30-year-old, able-bodied man, living in your mom's basement, playing video games, no job, eating pizza, not taking care of your health, not contributing anything to the society that God puts you in, right? That would be sinful. Why would that be sinful? Because that's neglecting your responsibility as an image bearer to, to live out in the world that God created and placed you in. So we have responsibilities not just um, to the social networks that we put ourselves in. We have responsibility because God created us and put us in the world. So uh, we all have lots of people that are counting on us to live, and so we have responsibility to live in that way for the glory of God. So the church fathers, really several of them, I think probably most famously is Augustine and then, you know, 1,200 years later, Calvin. But both of these kind of important church thinkers talked about the image of God as like an angled mirror. An angled mirror. And I actually watched it. <clears throat> There's a YouTube video of N.T. Wright talking about the angled mirror. He actually talks about it like it's like this new thought that he came up with. You know what I mean? And, I yeah, but it's a it's it's a neat idea. So the idea is like you have this angled mirror, and what the angled mirror does is it lets you see up, like so you can see God through the angled mirror, 
but you can also see out. And so what, what the angled mirror is doing is it's reflecting the image of God out into the world, right? And so we, as, as God's image bearers, we are angled mirrors. So we can see the glory of God and we contain the glory of God. We're a mirror, but we also reflect that glory of God out into the world. So being made in the image of God is not the same thing as being a statue that's, that's designed like the image of God. It's more like being a mirror. It's, it, you contain that image, but you also have, a, um, you have a, the capacity and the responsibility to reflect that glory out into the broader world, the broader creation. So uh, the blank there is mirror. And that, of course, is where the, the, the name of this series comes from, Reflect. We want to reflect the glory of God. And tonight we talk about what happens when that mirror is fractured. So here's a, a, a really good quote by Tozer about the image of God. The doctrine of man made in the image of God is one of the basic doctrines of the Bible and one of the most elevating, enlarging, magnanimous, and glorious doctrines that I know. We'll talk about all of that as we kind of get through the lesson tonight. So, that's what I have to say about introduction. <clears throat> um, I think it's important, and that's why last week was so important. We kind of get what do we mean by the image of God. And so that first section is kind of what I mean when I'm talking about the image of God. But I also think it's important to talk about so if you're wanting to apply something, what are you wanting to apply it to? And so we're wanting to apply the image of God into our culture today. And so this is maybe not going to be the most warm and fuzzy and uplifting section of the talk, but I think we ought to talk about it. We live in, a, in an era and an age of deep social, psychological, and spiritual confusion. Confusion. And that's not, I don't think, that derogatory. I think every age is going to have uh, different different sins, different issues that they're struggling with. So if you know anything about world history, uh, there are, um, one of my favorite history teachers in college would say, let me tell you, someone with a PhD in history, there, there are no good old days. Right? Every day, every era has some kind of deep problem. And I think this is at least one of ours. So let's maybe unpack that a little bit. And then think about if we live in an era of change, and this is some of the change we're experiencing, how does the unchanging characteristic of our humanity is created in the image of an unchanging God, how can we apply that? So, more than in any other era, we have the economic resources to live life comfortably. So I wish that we had more time to kind of unpack like kind of the uh, economic and political history of the world. But the, the short, short thing to say is, for all of human history, if you think human history is 6,000 years, 10,000 years, 250,000 years, depending on kind of how you want to read some of the stuff we talked about earlier um, in, in MDVVS, no humans have lived anything like what the humans have lived like in the past 250 years, since about 1740, kind of the birth of modernism till today. And really, the big jump is not even that 250, 300 years. It's like since like 1950. So the, the um, life expectancy, the standard of living, the things that people die from, the amount of economic resources we have, the size of our homes, the vehicles we drive, the amount of entertainment that we have access to is just beyond even comprehension. So you live life better today than any um, Spanish king did in the 13th century. Like your life is enormously 
there's like this famous article that people reference in this conversation. They talk about um, some, I wish I could remember the exact details, but this like Spanish king, his favorite thing was like to have a sandwich. And it was like this delicacy for him to have a sandwich, right? Because if he was going to have a sandwich, I mean, he had like professional like agriculture guys that were like growing wheat to make flour to get like bread and they were like cutting the bread in slices for him and somebody was like killing a pig to like get the meat and somebody was like getting the lettuce and they were importing cheese because they couldn't make cheese in their country and so they kind of, like his sandwich was like ten thousand dollars they were like how much it cost me like I mean, you can get a Subway sandwich for $1.99 that's better than what this king was eating like as a delicacy. So the truth is from like a material economic health perspective, we live in unprecedented times. But I think what's also true is increasingly we have no concept of what it means to live life well. So we live life very, very comfortably. But really the tragedy of our time is in an era where we live comfortably with unimaginable wealth and uh, unthinkable safety and um, just incredible resources entertainment at just that moment our culture at large maybe there's individuals in the culture who, who aren't this confused but our culture at large doesn't even know what a life well lived is like i don't think there would be an agreed on definition of kind of gen- in general terms what does it mean to live life well and so i think we're confused about that in fact we're confused about the most basic questions of human existence so manhood and womanhood, I think that's definitely up for debate. Sexuality, I think that's definitely a question that causes tension and questions. I think questions about race and, and how the races interact. I think questions about money. And if, if we live in a time of unprecedented wealth, how are we supposed to live with this wealth? And what do we, how do we exist with people of um, divergent and different degrees of wealth within the same culture? Huge questions about that. And I think reasonable answers on on all different sides the idea of freedom so what is what is our freedom for i think there's reasonable arguments say our freedom is to exist and create the most pleasurable life we possibly can but that certainly is not the answer that that christianity would give or really for that matter any kind of western or religious tradition that, that would not, they would not say that's the purpose of life and so how do we apply that Again, I wish we had more time to kind of unpack this, because both because I think it's interesting, but I also think there's wisdom in kind of honestly talking about the weaknesses of the culture that you live in. Even though I, I love, there's no other culture I'd want to live in than kind of um, liberal, modern, democratic culture. I don't mean like liberal, like politically liberal. I mean like a, like classically liberal, like like free, a, a society of liberty and democracy. That's I, I wouldn't want to live in any other culture. Um, I'm proud to be an American, the whole thing. But I think it's helpful to say, like, well, what are the areas where our culture is a little weak? And so these are kind of two trends that I think have been hurtful. The first is what's called postmodernism. So I'm sure you guys have heard this term before. But classically, we'd say modernism started in, like, the 1700s and extended until sometime in the 20th century. And so this is where you get the idea of, like, empiricism and modern science and individual rights and freedom. A lot of that was kind of... Um, expanded and codified from previous generations in that era. So then we kind of reach a point of kind of fulfilling a lot of the promises of Western democratic capitalist societies. And so then what, is it, what does life really mean? And so that's kind of the era we're in now. It's, it's been labeled postmodernism. All that means is it, it's the cultural era after modernism. And um, it's characterized by broad skepticism, 
meaning we don't really we, we question everything even things that are that are true and good it's subjectivism meaning uh, it's kind of it's based on your pers- truth is based on your perspective it's relativism I mean not only is truth based on your perspective but it's even relative you could you could change your mind on important questions and then there's a general suspicion of reason so there's kind of like you there, there really is no answer to those questions David it's just kind of is whatever you know so you kind of suspicious you can't think through what is what a true and good life is it's kind of there is no answer to that question so that, that's kind of the way a postmodern would think and then this idea of liquid modernity so I adopted this from Rod Dreher wrote a book you might want to scribble the name of this book down but it's called um, The Benedict Option Benedict Option I, I would recommend that it's a really helpful book to kind of think about American culture right now but his point about this liquid modernity is he says we're still a modern society but we're a modern society that's changing so fast that our institutions don't have time to establish themselves and create new cultural norms and so when that's true then everything's relative and we don't have anything to kind of agree on so then we can engage in civil civic and civil debate on the issues that we disagree on because there is no standard so we don't agree on anything and so that's the idea of liquid modernity a society that is experiencing change so rapidly that no social institutions have time to solidify I've talked about this before if you think about like social media so social media has developed so recently 10 years ago we almost didn't even have social media or at least anything like we experience it today and so what's happened is there's no kind of norms about how we use it right so you'll see people like like a married couple sitting at dinner both on their phone and obviously that's not socially acceptable but like we haven't created like cultural norms to kind of navigate and self-police these issues and so it's not just it's not just social media be like say like siri for example might just like (laughs) talking um, yeah, but so it'd be true of social media or any kind of kind of new institutions and how those apply. So, introduction: What is the Imago Day? What culture are we live in? In part two, and so then I think the combination of those two things—a broken culture, a universal truth of uh, being made in the image of God—how do we apply those, and how do how have we misapplied those in our culture? And then we're going to run through, I guess, five big issues and then the, my sixth point is like and everything else <laughs> right but there's there's five that I care enough about that I said hey I want to stop and talk about these five and then um, maybe we'll spend just a minute reflecting and saying hey it's not just these five things <clears throat> so the first one to talk about is our idea of identity identity so our identity and I really want you to kind of just think through this with me think through this sentence our identity is not fundamentally and I mean that by fundamental because of I do think we have some secondary identities that are important. And so I don't want to neglect those and pretend like they're not important to us or to other people. But fundamentally, I don't think it's Christian to think of yourself primarily as the race that you are, the sex that you are, the sexuality that you experience, the culture you come from, your political beliefs, or your earthly citizenship, right? I don't think those are fundamentally what makes you who you are. So when you lay in bed at night and you think of yourself, David Flat laying here in bed, my fundamental existence isn't as a man or an American or um, you know what my political beliefs are, are a Westerner, right? My fundamental existence should be as a as children of our heavenly Father made in His image, right? So at at my most fundamental level, 
And I'm not saying those other identities aren't important or don't have value, but when you make those identities supreme, you're really quickly down a slippery slope that's, gonna, that's going to create human hurting and is going to prevent you from living a life of flourishing. So the only worthwhile fundamental identity is as a child of our Heavenly Father made in His image. And I want to unpack kind of what it means to be a, a child of God and what it means to be made in His image by looking at how we kind of distort that. All right, so we've kind of been off the beaten path on kind of some historical tangents, and I, I want to go on one more tonight, and then, then I'll be done with that. <clears throat> but I want to talk about race. And so I think it'd be silly to kind of live in this. We talked about Western democratic capitalism and the human flourishing that it's created. Uh, but it'd be kind of disingenuous to just to tell that story as if every step in that story has been beautiful and good for everyone that lives in our society, because of course it hasn't. And uh, one of the lines between people who have experienced uh, this society is a blessing and people who had really some some unjustified pain and suffering is along the lines of race. And so I, I want to think through how racial issues and, and slavery and racism is an Imago Day issue. It is an Imago Day issue and why that why that's so. So I want to think about, does anybody, um, well, I, I guess I don't want to put him on the spot, but think about the maybe one of the most important Supreme Court cases in American history uh, because it was so horribly decided and reflects um, just kind of the, the sinfulness of, and sinful potential of human hearts that had to be overcome in our culture is a Dred Scott versus Sanford. So this is this case that comes up in 1857. Dred Scott lives in a free state, um, but he is, um, he's a slave and he sues um, for his freedom to be seen as a free man. And the Supreme Court on a 7-2 to vote said that he couldn't sue to be a free man because he's, he couldn't sue for his freedom under the constitutional guarantees for, for human freedom because he's not an American citizen because he's not a man. He's not a person. He doesn't have equal value. So, of course, this is tragic, right? So, but, so how could a decision like that happen? Well, a decision like that can happen because there's the sin of ignoring Dred Scott's humanity, the glory that Dred Scott has as an image bearer of the Creator, in the same way that the seven Supreme Court justices that voted that Dred Scott wasn't a man were made in the image of that same God, right? So these seven justices were denying Dred Scott the same glory that God gave Dred Scott that they were experiencing the blessings and responsibilities of, right? So this is a tragedy. It almost can't be overstated what a disaster like that particular case has been for American history, what a, does that, what like a blemish that is on kind of our uh, civic life and even, I mean, today in American culture, we're dealing with kind of the implications of that kind of sin and how that carries through. But John McLean is one of the two dissenting Supreme Court justices, and I want to read his um, rationale for, for disagreeing with the, the ruling and saying that the Dred Scott should have been granted his freedom. He says, a slave is not mere chattel. So that, that's a, an old word that just means property. So a slave is not mere property. He bears the impress of his maker, and he is destined to an endless existence. So what is McLean's rationale for Dred Scott's freedom? That Dred Scott's made in the image of God. I mean, it's the, in the Supreme Court case, basically John McLean says, Dred Scott's made in the image of God. He's not just property, and he's going to live forever with his maker. He deserves freedom. 
And so I think that would just be my challenge to us. I, I, obviously, race is kind of a in a kind of a sad way. It's kind of rising up again as kind of a political issue that maybe it wasn't even like I don't know just a few years ago. It just feels more present. Maybe about that, but it feels that way to me. And so as we kind of navigate this, I don't want to suggest tonight that I've got all the answers, even any answers for some of these questions. But I do think that we I understand the principle, which is that all people, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of what nation they come from or what nation they're trying to go to, every person on the planet is created in the image of God and deserves the dignity that that, that conveys, which is, which is ultimate dignity. It can't be taken away regardless of what any Supreme Court says. So every person on the planet has dignity, capacity, and responsibility because they're made in the image of God, regardless if they're red, yellow, black, and white, to, to borrow from the uh, famous children's hymn. All right, so race is something I care a lot about. The third one I want to talk about is unborn life. So how does the Imago Dei apply to unborn life? So I don't know exactly. I mean, obviously, I'm hitting some controversial stuff tonight, and so maybe there's people in the room that disagree with me on some of this stuff, and that's okay. We can talk about it afterwards. But for the next 10 minutes, I've got the floor, so I'm going to say what I think. And uh, so, so this is something that's, that really matters to me, and one of my favorite lines is from the Dr. Seuss book. So a person is a person no matter how small. How small. And so I think let's start by telling a story that, that probably most of us don't know because it's not a story that's told because it's a story we kind of want to keep secret in our culture. And it's a story of the scope of abortion, how big of an industry um, killing unborn babies is in, in our country. So every year, 42 million children are killed in the womb. 115,000 abortions occur every single day. Since Roe v. Wade passed in the 1970s, 57 million American children's children have been aborted, killed in the womb. Um, and so the point I just want to make there, so, so Planned Parenthood is a billion-dollar business. Um, they're the biggest abortion provider in America. There's, there's also, obviously, other companies that, that perform abortions. But I think uh, we don't tell the truth about this story for several reasons. But one thing I want to emphasize is just it's a big deal. There's a lot, a lot of this is going on. Something else I want to emphasize, this may or may not be true, but if you think about numbers that big, it means that there's a lot of people, a lot of good people, a lot of good, decent, hardworking um, even Christian people who be, who have been a part of this kind of behavior in one way or another, either funded it, maybe had one themselves, maybe even performed it. And so I, I just think I'll, whenever I talk about this, I always want to emphasize there is no magic sin about abortion that, that is different than all the other sins, meaning God's grace is going to cover the abortionist or the woman who had an abortion or the man who paid for an abortion, just like any other sin. So if you're sitting here tonight and, and there's something uh, there's something in your past tied to this kind of sinful behavior, I just want you to know that God loves you and we love you and we want you to be here and we want you to feel God's grace in this area of your life, just like I experienced God's grace in all areas of life that I don't deserve. So don't feel ostracized if you're a part of this, but at the same time, Let's not let's be honest about it. Let's not ignore uh, this topic because it can be uncomfortable. So here's we talked about last series. We talked about just like um, kind of arguments, how we frame thinking. So here's how I'd I'd want to just suggest that we frame thinking about abortion. Number one is it is wrong to kill human beings. 
it is wrong to kill human beings. So I think um, there's lots of reasons to believe that, and we've kind of talked about them before. You can believe that because you believe the Bible, and you believe the Ten Commandments, and it's wrong to kill. You can believe that if you don't believe the Bible, and you have deduced through human reasoning or intuition or just the obviousness of your own conscience that we shouldn't kill each other. But if you believe that it's wrong to, to kill human beings, then I'd submit to you the second thought, and that is that a fetus is a human being. A fetus is a human being. I think in 1973, when Roe v. Wade passed, this was a little bit more open, right? We didn't really have, the human genome hadn't been sequenced yet. We didn't kind of understand molecular biology the way we do now. We kind of thought, we certainly didn't have 3D ultrasounds, things like that. We kind of thought that human being, that fetuses were like a clump of cells. You may have heard phrases like that before. So Margaret Sanger, the original parent, Planned Parenthood thinkers would say things. They describe a fetus as a clump of cells. But of course, we know that's not true anymore. We can see the face of babies. We can see babies crying in the womb. We can see babies smiling in the womb. Um, and at any rate, having a lot of medical, dental, science people in the room, like a, a baby has a different DNA sequence than a mother, right? At the time of conception, the chromosomes on a baby are different than the mother. And the reason is because it's a different person. Right? It's, a, it's a, a human being in the womb. And the last thing I'd say, just to really drive home, I think the fetus is a human being. If it's not a human being, what do you think it is? It's not canine. It's not bovine. Right? It's not a tree. Like, what kind of, if, if it's living, and of course we've got to agree it's living, because that's what abortion is, is ending its life. So if, if it's living and it's not human, then what would you say it is? Well, of course you wouldn't say it's anything. It's clearly a human being. And to say it's not is to kind of ignore modern science. And so last blank, I would say if, if one and two are true, then killing a fetus or abortion is wrong. So if killing humans is wrong and fetuses are humans, then killing fetuses is wrong. So that's kind of a, maybe a short kind of uh, non-emotional kind of logical way to think about abortion. I want to share two quotes that have kind of especially impacted me thinking about abortion. The first is, to endorse or even be neutral about killing innocent children created in God's image is unthinkable in the scriptures, was unthinkable to Christians in church history, and should be unthinkable to Christians today. That's from Mandy Alcorn. <clears throat> okay, and this is from Greg Kokel. This is kind of a longer quote, but it tells the story of a baby that he knows named Rachel. Kokel says, think of a girl named Rachel. Rachel's two months old but she's still six weeks away from being a full-term baby. She was born prematurely at 24 weeks in the middle of her mother's second trimester. On the day of her birth, Rachel weighed one pound, nine ounces, but dropped to just under a pound soon after. She was so small she could rest in the palm of her daddy's hand. She was a tiny, living human person. Heroic measures were taken to save this child's life. But why? Because we have an obligation to protect, nurture, and care for other humans who would die without our help, especially little children. Rachel was a vulnerable and valuable human being. But get this, if a doctor came into the hospital room and instead of caring for Rachel, took the life of this little girl as she lay quietly nursing at her mother's breast, it would be homicide. However, this, if this same little girl, the very same Rachel, was inches away resting inside her mother's womb, she could legally be killed by abortion. Psalms 139, 13-14 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. 
I know that full well. Christians should care about unborn life because we believe that every person on the planet, including those persons still living in their mother's wombs, are created in the image of God. And so we care for those 56 million children who haven't seen the light of day in our country because of Roe v. Wade decision on abortion. And we should do what we can uh, to protect and love unborn children. Okay, the fourth thing that I think is an Imago Day issue is the issue of poverty. So think about Psalms 103, verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. So in our world today, this is the world you woke up in today, one billion people live in abject poverty, which is defined as less than $1 per day. Then we would call severe poverty living between living on less than between $1 and $3 per day. That's another billion people. So you've got 2 billion people in the world living on that kind of income per day. 500 million lives are being lived right now on the brink of starvation. 300 million children live subjected to violence, abuse, and exploitation. 16,000 children will die today from totally preventable causes. Mostly things like diarrhea, dysentery, like things that like we, you know, modern Western democratic capitalism cured a long time ago. So these numbers, another story, these numbers are a lot better than they were in 1800. The world has changed a lot since then. Most people in the world in 1800 lived under these conditions. But um, modernism and Western democratic capitalism hasn't extended across the whole world. And so there still are one or two billion people in the world living this way. And so it begs the question, what's different about <coughs> my children and children living in those kind of poverty tr- um, conditions all across the world. And of course, I love my children differently because they're my children. And I believe they're made in the image of God. But so are those children on the other side of the world. And so part of our Christian witness is thinking about how can we honor and take up the responsibility that we have to care for our fellow image bearers who don't experience the same kind of material and comfort blessings that we have, especially when we have more than enough. Right, So it's not your fault that you were born in 2018 America, the richest society that the world has ever known. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Right, So don't go home tonight and feel guilty that you live in this country. Feel a responsibility to bless the world for the glory of God because of the academic and educational and professional opportunities that you've been given that you really, we really didn't do a lot to create. Right, like We all work hard. We've studied hard. We've taken advantage of our opportunities. But at the end of the day, we stand on the shoulders of, of giants who created a civilization that, that we didn't deserve. And we should use that opportunity for God's glory to, to spread His name and spread His blessings to as many people as we possibly can before we die. That's the way a Christian thinks about what does it mean that, I was bo- that I've been born to the richest civilization man's ever known. That's the way you think about it. How can I leverage that for the glory of God? And one of the ways we interact with that is on the issue of poverty. All right, fifth and finally is our relationships with each other. How does believing that Kyle was made in the image of God impact my friendship with Kyle or that Lauren was made in the image of God impact my marriage with my wife? <clears throat> so I would say that we, love, we should love one another for the glory of God. So this, I really want to emphasize this. We should, you may want to under, underline the word useful here. We should not see our fellow image bearers as useful in our own pursuits of personal, professional, sexual, or egotistical gain. 
And so I think at one level or another, a lot of our relationships we view this way. You may have friends, but they're your friends because you have similar interests, and when you're with them, they make you feel better about yourself. And so I'm friends with Joe over here because Joe makes me feel good. Or Joe is a, is a connected guy, and he can help me get ahead professionally. Or Joe makes me feel good because um, he, he pumps up my ego because of whatever, right? And so I think as we view um, our relationships either with um, our spouses our friends, our work colleagues, our people who are in our bosses, our people who report to us, none of those relationships should be based on the usefulness of the people that surround us. Those relationships should be based on living in harmony in God's world with fellow image bearers for God's glory. So a, a pro-life view of humanity doesn't view other humans as useful. We view other humans as image bearers. So sometimes in the abortion industry, you'll hear like, you'll hear arguments like, you know, these children were going to be born to mothers and in, situ- and in situations where they were not going to make anything of themselves anyways, and they were going to be on welfare. And since they've been aborted, they're not going to be a drain on society. And that is clearly an unbiblical, unchristian way to think of any humans. We don't think of humans as useful. This human's going to be a good taxpayer. This human's going to be on welfare. We don't view humans that way. We view humans as image bearers who we live in relationship with for the glory of God. So the sixth thing I want to say is I just want to encourage you to think through how, if you believe the Bible, and I I recognize that's a big question, right? And it's a question we've tried to, to labor to try to convince you that that's a reasonable way to live your life. And there's good reasons to believe the Bible. But ultimately, you've got to answer that question for yourself. Do you believe the Bible? And if you believe the Bible, the Bible says that all humanity, male and female, were made in the image of God. And if that's true, that changes everything. It changes everything about everything. And so I just listed some other issues, but we could go around the circle tonight and think of countless more issues. How does being, living with and being an image bearer of our Creator impact our lives? But I've listed a few that I think are, are relevant. So the Imago Day informs a Christian worldview on a host of other issues, including low self-worth. So if you think low of yourself, if you struggle with thinking that you're worthy or valuable or good enough, you're made in the image of God of the creator of the universe. He made you, in the greatest possible being made you in His image. There is, no, there is no greater message for how valuable you are. You're made in the image of your heavenly Father. And so, of course, low self-worth and depression and kind of how all these things interact, that's a complicated issue. But at the core is the truth that you're valuable because you're made in the image of God. Or maybe egotism. Maybe you think that you're the stuff because you are you know a medical professional and you're making good grades or you've surpassed your peers in different um, competitive (laughs) academic situations the truth is the same image that God has given you that gives you glory and gives you um, power and gives you worth he gave to a homeless woman sleeping on the streets of our city tonight that the rest of the world says is worthless and so if you're up on a pedestal because you think you're so great, you need to understand that, that you're no different than every other person on the planet. Yes, you're infinitely worthy, but you're no more worthy than everyone else because we're made in the image of God. Or sexual abuse. I, uh, if you think about 
how our culture is just really transfixed on kind of the exposure of this clearly sinful behavior that's been going on in all kinds of realms that, that wasn't realized before. At the core of that is an Imago Day issue, right? It's men using women for their own sexual pleasure because they found this woman useful. Not as an, an image bearer to, to love as their wife and to share intimacy and love and um, togetherness with, but as a tool to create sexual pleasure for themselves. They found these women useful, so they abused them. They didn't treat them like fellow image bearers. Or euthanasia. We don't have time to kind of break into all that, but, but I just, in a, in euthanasia is a more complicated issue than sometimes we pretend it is, just throwing that word out there. But, but think about when is it okay for a doctor to interact with a patient to end their life? And that question is clearly wrapped up in do you think that patient has intrinsic moral value or not? Is that patient just a bipedal primate that is sick and their life is going to end anyways? Or is that patient uh, have intrinsic moral worth made in the image of God and will exist for eternity? And I think the answer to that question is going to say a lot about what is and isn't appropriate at the end of life. So I want to close with this thought. And it's that the gospel and the Imago Dei. So we are created, not creator. So this is the principle, the first principle of the Imago Dei that the gospel flows out of. So there is spiritual separation between us and God. You are not God. You are God's creation. In all sorts of ways. Not just physical. Not just spiritual. But from a sin and holiness perspective. You're not God. You're His creation. You're separated from Him. But the second principle that flows out of the Imago Dei is that we have infinite intrinsic value as image bearers. You are so valuable that God went to extremes to be with you forever. To be with you forever. So the gospel, in light of the Imago Dei, recognizes that we're created and separated, but we're so valuable that God saw it, saw it worthwhile to pursue us. So how can we get to a place where we can say that a millionaire from New York and a beggar from New Delhi have equal infinite value? The answer is that the Imago Dei and the gospel of Jesus that it is built upon. God, in all His holiness and love, created the homeless pregnant woman who spent last night cold and scared in our city, and He placed in her His image the same way that He placed His image on you. Just like you, the well-dressed banker from Boston has a soul that is ravaged by sin, and He has no answer but the grace of God. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was not for the rich or the poor or the south or the north, the educated or the ignorant. God so loved the world with all of our fractured mirrors that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. May we bear our saving God's image with the joy and sacredness that it deserves. And that is the amount of day in our fractured mirrors. Okay, thank you to David, and uh, thank you to everybody who came to Bible study tonight. We are finally back at our home, which is, is fun for me to be able to host this group again. We had a month or longer there where we were out with getting floors redone. You didn't want to know that, but uh, anyway, it was great to have everyone uh, back where we had started this whole group. Uh, we will be back next week, Monday night, 7 p.m. at our home here in Germantown. We have two weeks back-to-back, -back, uh, the Dasher family, so Grant and Jessica Dasher. They will be teaching on, uh, next week, biblical manhood, and then the following week um, on biblical womanhood. 
And so David alluded to that, um, the idea that we were created in the image of God, also male and female, he created them. And obviously this is a you know, controversial topic today, and we are redefining what it means to be male and female, and gender is, is sort of a um, continuum and so on and so forth. Uh, obviously a sensitive topic, an important topic, and one that I think God has a lot to say about uh, throughout the Bible. And we will look at that next week in terms of how we should live as men and live as women and things like that. So I hope you will rejoin us for that. And man, we're down to the end. We've only got two weeks left. We'll have the summer off, but we are going to start a second year of this uh, come August, and it will be a whole new curriculum. We've already started planning that. We'll work towards that. And so uh, maybe you can join us for that. If you've not come to anything this year, you can jumpstart with us in August. Um, hope you guys are having wonderful weeks. We've had a lot of uh, step one tests being taken, and uh, congratulations to those of you who have finished that. Um, I'll also, on the off chance that you're out there listening to this, either tonight or tomorrow, I'm going to be at CMDA Wednesday at noon in A203 in the GEB. So I'm going to be talking on finding happiness as a healthcare professional. We're going to be talking about uh, the stress of being a healthcare professional, but also uh, the ways in which we can find happiness and I think ultimately uh, true joy, which is, is what I think we're all after. And uh, yeah, so I hope you can be there. This is uh, noon. I, I realize only so many of you will be out there. Most of you will have missed this announcement, but hey, it's worth a shot. CMDA, if you're a medical dental or whatever student, will we'll be up there. I say will. It'll be me. We'll be up there uh, on Wednesday um, noon, A203. So I hope to see you there. Uh, anyway, thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.